And welcome to the Dice of Screaming Podcast. <laughs> what the heck was that? Screaming dice, at oh. least two of them. Oh. Galloping into the distance. Galloping. <laughs> or rolling because they're mud dice and they yes. have no edges left. So they just ah. roll perpetually along yes. with the wax crayon. <laughs> yes. The numbers come in. Yes. The, the, the numbers colored in with wax crayon, the opposite color of uh, whatever the dice was. <laughs> or yes. whatever they put in the box. Those were the good old days. Yeah, and hey, that's uh, that's us. Uh, welcome to the Dice Screaming Podcast. I'm I'm Randy, and I'm Mike, oh. and this is what you get with the iron rations of gaming podcasting. Yeah, all the fresh stuff is already gone. This is all that's left. It's, <laughs> it's us or hunger. Yeah, this is what you got. <laughs> you're this far into the dungeon. You're all out of the tasty stuff. You know, like all, all the fresh cheese and fruit and all of that. All that's gone. What you got is us. <laughs> yeah, it takes do? an iron constitution to put up with us. <laughs> yeah, so uh, last week we weren't able to get a podcast out, so we're going to make up for it. Not by bonus content, but just by being extra boring today. So oh. get your... Oh, far from boring. I, I'm i pretty jazzed about today's topic. Oh, yeah? You know, I, I, I know we were talking about the evolving nature of people's relationship with uh, inter- intellectual property and the ownership of the mediums by which IP is delivered into people's hands now. Mm-hmm. In, in a digital age, we've seen this this evolution, and now we're watching a kind of de-evolution. So we're going to be talking about something that I got a little bit of passion for today. All right. So I'm, I'm hoping that really helps me bring my A game. All right. Well, hey, I'm all excited. But before we get into that episode, we have a couple of points of business. Uh, first of all, talk about our reactions to a Appendicitis N. We had a few, uh, just a few comments filters through the various means of social media and on interaction on our website, uh, or website. Yeah, there we go. Pages <clears throat> on our, on our um, Spotify page. Oh, wonderful. Yeah, we had interaction. We had ah uh, interaction. <laughs> <laughs> so we're happy to have ah uh, interaction. So we'll cool. talk about that. Um, yeah, it seems like uh, more or less uh, the mark hit home. Um, we wanted to just basically put it out there that this is what we considered an appendicitis <laughs> N because a lot of people talk about appendix N as like the holy script. This is what you must read from to understand D&D. And it's changed a lot. Uh, one that we did not mention was uh, the author of The Black Company because, again, he was in that nebulous time. Oh, yeah. And I I do want to say something about our previous podcast is that I, as I see it, I accidentally came unready for the topic proper. Uh, I had prepared because conceptually my imagination had taken away that we were going to talk about like the really brand new stuff, like the literally just the last few years of science fiction, fantasy fiction releases. You know, like maybe going back to 2018, 2019, but certainly no further. Uh, I did not grasp that, like, we were going to be referencing much, much older stuff from, like, 40 years ago that just got overlooked. Like, that was unfairly, like, it's not characterized as true Appendix N material, but honestly, we think it should be. 
which is a different right. category. It, so it I, I came prepared for very <coughs> new stuff, and I was wildly unprepared to discuss older oh authors. Uh, it, so it caught me completely out of left field. I, so I, if it seems like I've like lost the thread for a moment, it was because a part of my brain was readjusting the whole time. Like, er, all right, hit the brakes. We've got to do a 180 spin. Er, all right, time to catch back up. And... You know, we wanted to cover, because the Appendix N came out in the oh, early 80s, a couple authors, like we mentioned. Uh, well, 78, the Appendix N and the, the DM's Guide, you know, 77, 78. Uh, 70, you have it right. It was, it was 78, 79. Yeah. Uh, 79, it was released, but it was probably mostly penned in 79. Or 78, excuse me. So, yeah, if you were after that, uh, the Red Box had a reading list and then uh, yeah. the Metzner one had a recommended reading list. It became a tradition uh, and <clears throat> started with the DM guide and then like, but the yeah, everybody famously remembers like, Oh man, you know, the appendix end got me really turned on to some uh, different fantasies. That yeah. wasn't, but we weren't able to talk about like uh, Raymond Feist. Um, we were, um, we wanted to put him in there, obviously, oh, the as Dragon well as Wars Terry Saga, Burke. Uh, like uh, speaking of brand new material, Dragon Wars Saga, uh, Volume One, A Darkness Returns. That's that's like coming out shortly. Like uh, the cover art's finished. Uh, like the you know the printing is done. It should be hitting shelves. So yeah, Mister Feist is still right. Like, and you know, uh, but the one I didn't get to put on there, I wanted to basically step in there was Glenn Cook's The Black Company. Ah, Glenn Cook. Good name. Yeah, and uh, we didn't mention Joel Rosenberg as much as, but we've also paid a lot of homage to him. In the past, yeah, we have brought some of those authors up in the past, so I I thought... So that would be one in there, and we spent some time talking about R.L. Stein, or justifying why R.L. Stein, uh, uh, which isn't typically your fantasy, but it definitely is a fantastic nature. Horror is definitely dependent a lot on a suspension of disbelief. Whether, you know, well, yeah, there are fantastic elements that like frequently find their way into horror tales. Uh, so, like, these are adjacent genres. Science so fiction, fantasy, of... and uh, horror are all yeah. siblings. Oh, yeah. I mean, Storm Constantine and, uh, oh, well, here's a vintage reference Poppy Z. Bright, uh, going back into the like dawn of the 90s uh, or mid 90s. Like those were I feel like we should have mine. a disclaimer for Poppy Seabury. But anyway. That, oh, you absolutely should because, I mean. That's not something to adventure in um, unprepared for. If yeah. you go into that one with with naivete, you will not enjoy your stay. Well, if you just read Lost Boys or Drawing Blood, you're probably still in the safe zone. But if you get to Exquisite Corpse, like you better have your pro gear. Okay. Yeah. you you If you're not prepared <laughs> To go down the road of like you know full blown, the darkest Stephen King you know material ever. Uh, if you're not ready for that, yeah, don't don't read Exquisite Corpse. It's, yeah, it, that's the one. Well, book. anyway, the, it's the one book I gave away because I was like, I don't want it in the house with me. I, I yeah. read it and now it feels like I feel the like book it'll be on a watch list or if the, the FBI breaks down the door with a search warrant. Yeah, it's, I feel like the book is staring at me. I'm like gonna, there's a whole Cthulhu thing going on here. Yeah, you know, there's there's also the fact that, that you have this on your bookshelf. There's a lot of un easy questions you will have to answer for 
having that in your collection. But anyway, yeah, but the, you will never read more beautiful prose about human entrails in your well, entire life. All right, so let's, like, yeah, let's, yeah, let's just on. lay it where it is. But uh, we uh, wanted to make that mention. So, yeah. but horror is an adjacent subject to the magnificence that is our favorite genre, fantasy fiction right. and science but fiction. But we also had to mention J.K. Rowling, obviously, in the Elephant yeah. Room. And we didn't need to really go into J. Uh, George R. R. Martin too hard because, well... I well, we didn't have the time, oh, but... We kind of forgot him, and that was kind of our fault, but that was because... But he's so... It's such a big name. Who doesn't know that one? Like, we don't sure. have this onus upon us, like, oh, you'd better let the people know about Mr. Martin. Because, like, you may not know this, but, like, they made a show out of some of his books. Really? Like, nobody watched it. It was, like, a total... This I know this is a bit of a deep cut, so... Uh, like, I, I hope you guys uh, catch up to how cool we are for even knowing about this. <laughs> but, yeah, uh, also I heard that, you know, we didn't cover Ursula de Guin, and if we're going to go that far well, back. we talked about we did, Yeah, okay, and she's been well-mentioned in... Uh, in uh, in the recommended reading list of the D&D box set. Now, that aside... I think we covered some of the better stuff, but you know what? Like you said, there's still a lot of fantasy out there. Oh, that's so much. And it's, you know, it may be for a new modern audience and, you know, we think that, that there's excluding you. Well, um, you might want to think again because sometimes what's new is old again. While the styles that people once looked as contrite or already mined out, well, they tend to replenish after a while and people want to have that kind of good experience again of going against an evil dark lord and yeah and let, let's put it this way um it is trite at a time when that's what every book is about okay if you've got like somebody has robust success with that the dark lord is going to return uh, and then there are 30 or 40 other authors who instantaneously leap on the bandwagon and every other book you read is the dark lord is going to return uh yeah it wears out but then when the sales drop off and people just aren't interested in you know dark lords returning constantly people stop doing that for a while and then after enough time goes by you read a story with that theme in it, that worn out, overused trope, and it's downright refreshing because you haven't seen it in years. So I don't mind. Yeah, Dennis McKieran's um, Iron Tower is pretty much a rehash of Token and then fluffed up. And some people may, there's a lot of controversy about that one. So that one I didn't include. I wanted to make mention of it just briefly because that had come up as like, you never mentioned the Iron Tower from Dennis McKieran. Well, it seems it, that one seemed to me more uh, a pastiche, and nothing wrong with that. I mean, Lynn Carter oh, had a lot of uh, did a Conan pastiches in his wrote in the vein of Conan from a different perspective, though yeah. a different hero. But you were basically experiencing more or less the same. Oh, it, it's the classic genre standard. Uh, you know, the, I think it's dismissive to call it just pure dribble, but hey, it's it is what it is. People hey, have pulp some... fiction of the time had requirements upon it. Uh, we cannot say with perfect accuracy what those authors would have created had they had total license to go as far as they wanted, doing as much as they wanted. Uh, there was a marketplace that was very specific and that had a very <clears throat> clear dynamic already in place. And if you weren't prepared to come and meet that, then you really had difficulty finding a place in it. 
uh, few and far between were the science fiction authors who came out of that marketplace uh, doing only what they felt like doing. Most of them entered into that marketplace doing what the market expected them to do. So I do not give them flack about that. Uh, like, oh, they, it's pulpy, you know, paperback fiction. They did as much as they could with the space, time, and funding that was allotted to them. Look, Michael Moorcock wrote a lot of Edgar Rice Burroughs uh, knockoffs, and because that was what was in demand, and he could, he was very fascinated with it, and he could make a good living at it. So, yeah. Anyway, yeah, we uh, definitely enjoyed Appendicitis, and as you can tell, we have a lot of strong opinions about it, and we like to talk about literature because not because we're smarty pants. Uh, snooty boys, but because we... Well, we are, but like that's right? beside the point. <laughs> Speak for yourself, sir. <laughs> no, we tried to... Look, we want to share the love. That's it. To be really honest, it's, it's not so much like we have read all these books, so you must read these books to be like smart guys like us. Yeah, we're, we're not, not bragging about the name drops. Uh, we, just, <clears throat> we want to keep the genre relevant. We want people to keep running across new stuff that excites them. Uh, we love any situation that gives other people inspiration, both for their reading pleasure and or for their gaming and or create personal creativity. Even if it's not gaming related, even if like uh, you've never considered yourself a qualified creative, like, oh, I, I don't know if I could do anything that awesome. There's no reason you can't. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, gaming is the place where you get your feet wet. It It's the the open door, like the, the, it's the, the wardrobe in the Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. You're like, you open that back panel and what lies beyond? You know what? I'm just going to write that down. We need to have a, a future episode about D&D or DMs as craftsmen, because there is a lot to that. But anyway, um, I'm going to put that note aside. Well, we are Bringing crafty. On... We're a crafty bunch. Well, not in a good way. Um, so... <laughs> That does bring us to this segment of the program where we talk about things that nobody cares about. No, things to come, things yet to happen, and things yet to pass. So, for that, we will consult the Astragalomancer. Oh, and the dice aren't shivering this time. All right. Gazing into the aether with his arms above his head for 45 minutes or until his arms get tired. Which is about 15 <laughs> the Astrogalomancer gazes into the future and sees fantasy cities. Yeah, we've had a conversation about this before in a smaller I, venue when we were... Uh, lost. We were talking more about world building and yep. like, like the personal crafting of... It, like the city came up as a side conversation. But you know, like this time we're going big meta, like panning the camera back, and we're looking at the actual phenom. Uh, and presence and importance of the fantasy setting city. The you know, there's always the big one. Yeah, the like King's Landing. Oh, yeah. And George R. R. Martin's spectacular realized in there whether you like the ending or not. You know how big it was, how important it was to trade. Obviously, Waterdeep and Baldur's Gate come to mind in, in Neverwinter. Greyhawk City. Uh, Greyhawk City. And Dathaway. Oh, and, and Joe Rosenberg. Or, uh, you know, the, the point being that wherever you go, fleshing out a truly magnificent and alive city that, like, 
it may not have the culture that all the rest of the setting has. It, it may have unique tidbits. And fleshing that out is one of the great joys of campaign creation. That like you you you're putting your fingerprint eh, mm. right there on top of that, saying, This is my creation. Uh, it is different from all the others. And it seems like every great fantasy fiction or even a great many of the science fiction authors have done exactly the same, but no game would be complete without an awesome city. Right. So that's what we want to uh, cover in for next one. So good on you, Aster Gallimancer, for giving us more good topic. All right. So we've done that. And so, well, here we are halfway through our opener. Before we turn to the topic, I think it's good that we talk about a couple things, and we're going to start out with a downer. I know uh, Brian Lumley has passed away, and uh, oh. another great horror author, as we were just talking about, but also fantasy and well, science fiction. I mean, basically dipped his finger yeah. in every... A writer's writer. Um, but he was more known, uh, most well-known, for his contributions to the Cthulhu mythos, the Cthonians specifically or his edition, like every good horror author, I think has to pass muster by writing at least one Cthulhu mythos story. And uh, oh, absolutely, that was his intention was like, you know, you got to go with every genre, you know, the mystery suspense, uh, the sublime, the grotesque, all those can, can be combined in the Cthulhu mythos. So that's why it's probably more intriguing in his treatise on that, as well as his ability to help other authors realize the horror genre as a viable medium to express themselves, I think is more, is his big legacy. And, you know, with that, I think it's well in hand that his passing be marked by just a remembrance of more than just, well, he wrote some Call of Cthulhu our stories and created a Call of Cthulhu monster that nobody likes. <laughs> The Gathonians, <laughs> Shethonians, if you want to really call them that. The Harbingers of Ruin and the Downfall of Man. But whatever uh, you come across about Brian Lumley's uh, raise a bit, of whatever it is you're drinking in memory of one of the greats, but no longer with us. So farewell. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yep. Yeah. We'll raise a glass of old Innsmouth and <laughs> pale ale. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> old and old and it's a fight <laughs> oh man maybe it's real fish based <laughs> but all right um yeah so we were also going to cover last week a bit about the 50th anniversary and uh, i was struggling whether we ran we... out of time because uh, wow we used up so much space but, well, yeah. we didn't get an episode out last week because just could not make the connections. Everything was out of whack. So those occasionally happen. And that's, you know, the part and parcel of having two knuckleheads. They have to clear schedules, move oh. heaven and earth to make it uh, yeah, available. Living equidistant from each other while, like, remaining in the same city. Like, it does not seem like this town is that big. But we each live at what is like physically the greatest possible distance from each other while remaining in, and I'm literally on the southernmost border. I am the last house before you. Yeah, and we're right on the northern border. Yeah, and so. <laughs> uh, yeah, the county line is uh, just but uh, just like less than half a mile up the road right at uh, Hastings. Yeah, Hastings, and for so. me, it's like at the end of my driveway. That's where the sign is to tell you that you're 
like no longer in Battle Creek, but you, you've entered the township of Leroy. So. Leroy Township. Yeah. Leroy. And you don't know how many times I have literally said that as I have approached it. Leroy Township. Oh, boy. I'm going to aggro the entire mob. You just watched. But so uh, anyway, we were going to talk about Oh, do it, man. It's all horse ranches out there. It's yeah. gorgeous out where I live. So, yeah, it is. It's a lot of fun being out there. But um, we're here at the 50th anniversary. We stand at the precipice of the 50th anniversary of Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah. Yeah, because it was early January 1974 that the wood grain box set was assembled by hand on the Gygax family dinner table. And that spring became commercially available or was shipped out to the uh, wider audience. Um, contrary to rumors, that set was not available earlier. There's some um, scurrilous, unfounded rumors of people owning box sets in 73. But uh, no one has ever, to date, produced evidence of that ever happening. And Yeah, much like uh, Bigfoot carcasses, uh, yeah. you know, like there's a lot of bold talk. <laughs> uh, and then when it comes down to the wire, like, no, we actually expect to see it. Just, uh, mm, uh. Well, I heard about a guy who knew a guy that talked about a guy that had seen what, a guy. Somebody run over a moose? Yeah. I'm sorry, man. <laughs> yeah, like, all right, I can already tell where this is going. You're out. So, yeah, 50th anniversary. So there's a lot that could be said, but I don't think we could say it any more than just to be contrite. Look, we all know what the role of Dungeons & Dragons played. It's origins, rise, and decline, and then reemergence is well-documented. At this point, if you're listening to this podcast, then you need to be reminded of what the role that Dungeons & Dragons, that original box that played. Um, you can listen to some of our podcasts, earlier podcasts, and, and pick that up for yourself. But yeah, we'll summarize that. I highly recommend like of Dyson Men and Fantasy Gaming and Playing at the World and some of those other books, uh, Empire of Imagination. You know, if you look at these, they will exhaustively... Uh, give information about that birth moment where well, we can provide that without uh, that original wood grain box set that later became the white box set that later became a blue box set introduction to the fantasy gaming environment. And then the first edition advanced dungeon dragons players, a monster mango players handbook and dungeon masters guide. We would not have the fantasy game genre that we do have today because but also we acknowledge that the games like tumbles and trolls traveler rune quest and uh even was it was it dragon quest yeah, yeah i think it was dragon quest there were many other early proto games like that that had been lurking around in people's mind like mark miller wanted to do a travel. lot of people had these notions and they didn't know what to do with them like because there was nothing quite like that out there Okay, there was just nothing to give them a, a framework for where they should go with their concept. Okay, a lot of them were looking at creating fiction and were writing fiction. They were already scribbling this stuff down. They had these notes, they had these ideas, like, oh, you know, here's a Tolkien-esque idea, but like completely different. This is all original material. But they didn't know what to do with it. There was no concept of like, well, we get some dice and we work out a way to transform this into a rule system. Didn't exist. And then D&D happened. And I, the one miracle I do want to touch on in this is that, like, it's been 50 years since a viral event took place. 
where this little thing that was taking place at a couple of wargaming tables with less than a few dozen people involved peripherally began to rapidly spread outwards. I mean, it's like D&D metastasized. Just boom. Um, okay, it went from zero to 60 in the era before the internet. Okay, there was no, we didn't even have bulletin board systems at that time. Okay, um, you know. <laughs> the only thing approaching an internet was highly classified military. Yeah, like uh, if, if you weren't. Networks. Uh, if, yeah. An education uh, network. So the first message was uh, transmitted, I think, just a couple of years before that. <laughs> exactly. So. Uh, the first email. This took place in like snail mail. Okay. I mean, in, in people actual, actually playing, uh, traveling, telling other people about this wacky thing they did and going, dude, it was like, well, that sounds crazy. I, like, why would are you, you having that? a stroke? Or do you smell toast? Yeah. You know, are you okay? Cause th- <laughs> we can get you some lithium, you know, if these voices don't stop talking like, no dude, it was awesome. We totally like uh, crawled into a, like we had to crawl through a sewer like you know the first 20 rounds of the game uh we got in a fight with a bunch of giant rats and then one of them was a were rat yeah you know, like half rat half person right, <laughs> uh, after the fight we had to go find a cleric because one of us was going to be in danger of turning into a were rat because he got bit by a were rat anyhow point being everywhere people who had played this went they took handmade copies of the rules with them if they had to. And within the space of just two or three years, uh, the demand for rule sets was so great that they had gone from making a few copies in the garage to, boy, uh, we're going to have to get a little more organized, guys. Yeah. Uh, this is, this is getting rapidly getting out of hand. That's the miracle of D&D. That's why we celebrate it 50 years later as something that is worthy of remembrance because it galvanized a concept and gave all the other people with little ideas like that, the will and like the encouragement to like, Hey, there's no reason I couldn't go and do something like this too. And that was the real miracle. The beauty of D and D is that all of gaming began to, or all of RPG gaming began to flow outward from that explosion but that's the big bang at the center of our universe yeah. that's the patient zero or the idea and you know i know that there's people out there well chainmail and castle bronze okay look i'm gonna level with anybody who wants to put chainmail as the first role playing the amount of people who had exposure to chainmail was probably considerably larger than the initial release of that wood grain box set because they were already a wargaming federation established and this was put directly into people's hands and that was a supplement in the back to fantasy to include ants race ring race hobbits and elves and all that into your normal fantasy or your normal uh medieval skirmish or uh war game collection so but at that time it was still very much less about your individual character it It did take off a Castle Bronstein was being run by uh, an eclectic group of gamers in the Minnesota Twin Cities area and made its way 
um, to Dave Arneson's table and all that. That story is kind of, that's an er proto moment of uh, role playing. But in it's fascinating in and of itself. But what we're talking about is like to play chainmail, you would have to have had collected and possibly even painted your pile of shame <laughs> to put on a board and play with somebody. Okay, so you're dealing with a niche in a niche. Uh, war gamers were very popular. A uh, war game was very popular, and war gamers were uh, quite the thing back then. But they were still quite rarefied in the fact that. Very few outside of that hobby understood it. Yeah, I was going to say popular might not be the word I would use because it was a niche hobby within a niche hobby. I, it was so rarefied and so uncommon for people that it was really considered to be a weird outlier. Like, I mean, if you thought D&D &D got stigma, okay. Well, yeah, there was also board gamers, traditional board gamers <laughs> were, yeah. were split between did you play uh, chit and hex games or did you play miniature games? And yeah. those two guys never got along. They would argue for hours, you know, who was the better one. <laughs> I don't paint my miniatures. Well, my, you know, if I sneeze, you know, my battle doesn't get fling across I the room. I didn't blast all my little cardboard pieces across the room. So. But that's where we are with it. And I just wanted to close on that because... Your army was defeated by a fan. So. <laughs> my beautiful army. In ruins. Ah, <laughs> uh, the fickle hand of fate. Swept from the battlefield in unglorified defeat. <laughs> but yeah, we'll um, we'll be coming up on the break right here, so we're going to go ahead and split on this topic right now. And uh, well, maybe yeah. we'll happy fiftieth D and D. That's right, happy fiftieth, and uh, many more to come. So we'll catch you after the break. So stick around. <laughs> All right, and we're back. Yeah, so. Racing against the clock at that last part, Derry. We were talking about the chainmail bronze scene thing, and you know, one of the things that we brought up was, you know, why were why in these northern climes were people playing these long, lengthy war games? Well, <laughs> we were sewed in. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, thank you, global warming. Not nearly such a problem anymore. Okay, <laughs> uh, like uh, two or three days go by, and life goes back to normal up here now. But. Circa like 1973, 1974, or in our case, like we both remember the the winters of like uh, 76, 77, 78. Oh, yeah. The blizzard of 79, the uh, uh, blizzard of 78. Yeah. Those, yeah. well, for three, four years there also in world, there was still quite considerable snowfall, like three or four feet. Like state least. paralyzing kinds of snowfall, like uh, where, you know, honestly, people made their peace with, I guess I'm going to be home for a week. Because uh, there is no way I'm going to be able to get a path to the street. It cannot be done. And so you just hunkered in place. And that is that is what life was like. So you would create campaigns or if you had yeah. uh, a sibling or a relative that was close enough to wade to the snow, <laughs> you would play. But usually after those were uh, those times lifted and people were out to move again, yeah, they, they got mobile real quick. So... <laughs> There's our dog warning us that a neighbor is about. Something is moving. Has <laughs> <laughs> <It is> moved. <laughs> okay. So now, anyway, uh, but talking about the on the heels of the 50th anniversary of D and D, you know, we have to talk about the chainmail and the Bronson game, the Twin Cities, and all that. There were northern climbs, and a lot of people would have time to cook up 
and prepare these elaborate campaigns. So that is a big contributor. But I don't, I'm not trying to say like, hey, because we don't have as much snowfall, there isn't much time. I think uh, that's going to lead us into a little bit of the topic we're going to talk about today. And um, so we're talking about IP ownership. And in the digital age, we've had a lot of new ways to play games and not only just play, but also collect, keep, and carry with us. And we're going meta on this. I mean, let's, uh, like, there has been an evolution in the way in which music, movies, uh, television, uh, like a serialized shows, mm-hmm. uh, you know, novels, uh, like a, we, we've seen an evolution in the way print is treated, uh, you know, and moved to a digital format. Uh, and then, of course, the rise of the video game mm-hmm. uh, and of the RPG. Uh, pretty much every entertainment medium you can imagine has been through a radical shift since our youth. Okay, it, yeah, it's not contained strictly to the games we play or gaming in the general sense. This, this is a kind of meta-topic on something that transcends all genres and all boundaries, and that is part of the collective experience that really every single American has. Unless you eschew all media, all music, all entertainment of any form, this has an impact on you. Uh, so what excited me about this was the, the opportunity to have a little commentary on uh, something. There are some things that have been very satisfying and very uh, engaging in the way media access has changed. The accessibility of it, uh, the ease of transfer, uh, you know, like the ability to acquire it. Uh, there was kind of a curve upwards because we came out of an environment in which circa the 1970s, um, we saw the advent of the video cassette uh, and the ability to record media off of television or to use a cassette player to record music off of the radio even or off of an album, you know, to transfer something from a record onto a cassette uh, these like shifts of medium happened during our childhood. And we went from an environment where if you didn't have an actual copy of it right there and then, you had nothing. There was nothing you could do about it. It was not going to, you could not order it on Netflix. You couldn't walk to a video store and get it. Like either you like owned a reel to reel film <laughs> or you had nothing. And you just waited for television to come out. Then came video cassettes. Now, of course, everybody could buy records and everybody could buy cassettes. But other media products finally caught up to that level of like, well, hey, just because it was on television doesn't mean that it has no value the day after it aired, except as a rerun someday years down the road at 10 o'clock at night. Uh, People are clamoring to have a copy of this. As soon as mediums became available, they were made use of. And so we watched this magnificent curve uh, go through these, like the tail end of the 70s, all the way through the 80s, you know, especially in the 80s, taking hold and expanding rapidly. And then through the 90s and even into the early 2000s, 
But then digitalization came along. And the beautiful part was the compact nature and the low physical presence. Okay, this, this was the marketing point. It was gorgeous to watch. Like, hey, instead of like, I've got 200 laser discs and I've dedicated an entire room of my house to the storage of them. Yeah, like that vinyl records i think would be a better analogy but yeah i get where you're going yeah i, I also I, I wanted... had to build an extra wing onto the house to store all my albums because my wife was going to be uh throwing me out to sleep with them if she like lost any more closet space so yeah like the physical presence of your media products now such as books and things like that became less onerous and hey I'm not dissing that. I'm not going to come out swinging and say, oh, it's all crap. Everything new is a piece of crap. <laughs> that I, is for the idiots. Okay? I, I would like to uh, just put a pin in that. For a minute, if you oh, can. okay. If you, yeah, I need to interject because I think we've moved a little bit beyond one of the points, but I want to bring up that, you know, one of the things that uh, as a, this dates me is like I we had a rotary phone. Yeah, me too. And then I went to a friend's house and they had a touchdown phone. And I'm like, oh, that's a that's a newfangled, fancy little thing there. <laughs> you know, what, what, what kind of technology you got there? You know, I felt like literally, you know, like I was a hick and, you know, it was just down the road. But, <laughs> but yeah, you know, you start to realize that, oh, wait, we're in a, we're a older age and my grandfather was like, you know, I'm going to get a new phone just because I got new technology. Every phone looks just fine. Blah, 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 blah. <laughs> well, know? yeah. I mean, what's wrong with one that already works? Right. You know, that was again. Uh, if it breaks, uh, I'll look into it. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, that that was the uh, way we looked at I was raised to look at technology. Like, if whatever worked in the past is just fine. Don't replace it. If it ain't broken, don't fix it, sort of thing. And, you know what? It'd be convenience hit. And boy, when VCRs came out, we had a. You know, the, the cassette tapes used to cost, uh, VCR uh, tape used to cost like 70, 80 bucks. And yeah, only the greatest and best movies would be put into that medium. Yeah. Uh, the legends. Okay. I mean, you know, we have. However, you could start to record shows. Bingo. And that was the big thing that uh, changed everybody's mind. It was yeah. like, well, I don't have to stay up and watch, uh, you know, Magnum P.I.? If I got an early work day the next day. Well, all right, I'll set my VCR and record at, it. At, you like With, after reading a technical manual that Air Force <laughs> rocket technicians <laughs> have to have prepared, <laughs> taking a technical course in high end electrical engine and computer engineering, I now am able to program my VCR clock. Yeah. Okay. So uh, yeah, which, they didn't they didn't make it easy. Congratulations okay. to you because I still can't. All right. Everything still blinks twelve. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I want, but I want to point when you start talking about everything was bad. Uh, one of our listeners, one of just one of our hundred of listeners, mentioned that uh, they want to take you to task for getting on the old man that you know real gamers meet face to face. And uh, one of the things that uh, he wanted to mention was like, hey, you know, a lot of my gamers live all across the world in various time zones, and this is the only way we can play. So I want to make mention, you know who you are, Mary. Yeah, I just named you. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I did confront him. I, you heard it here. Uh, he wasn't really, as he just said, though, as he wasn't trying to be like, it's all all this newfangled technology is all terrible. No. He was just saying that, like, hey, our experience is we game face-to-face. If you have a different experience, 
you're still valid. And look, you may get a face-to-face game now and then, and you recognize that each one is a different experience, but each is equal to the other. That's all. Oh, all right. Um, well, you know, back to the if the slow or well, actually, I mean, in geologic time, it was lightning quick. Uh, well, we, yeah, literally every year. It. But there's a premise that runs through all of these different mediums. The, they were compact. We went from VCRs to uh, DVDs, compact discs for music. Everything was easy to transport and, and carry. Now, at the end of the day, uh, everything from the 1970s, uh, you know, well, I mean, if we roll back to the dawn of the record, uh, then oh well, we don't need like, to go that far back. I, I, mean, I, I just want to say that, like, here we have like microbes a, at the ocean. You know, something that for about 80 years, and then we've added other mediums. It went from just like audio. Uh, to then audio and visual, mm-hmm. uh, and then you know so on and so forth, uh, serialized shows and everyday movies and things like that. The trend for the first eighty of those years was you have a product for sale, you go to a place, you pay somebody in exchange for that product, you take that product home, and then it is yours. And if somebody decides after the fact that they wish they had not sold that product, like we wish we had never done that song, well, tough titty. Uh, that's the thing that you ask yourself before you sell the song. Okay, uh, if you didn't want to make that song, if that is not the song you liked, if you hated the way it sounded and you hated the way it turned out, then it was really on you to not sell it in the first freaking place, not to then run along after the fact to chase down every copy and try to convince people to destroy them. Um, (laughs) uh, So, only in the digitalization era, this is the linchpin point of today's conversation, only in the digitalization era has the concept emerged of, hey, we don't even have to let people have ownership of the products that they are paying us for. They should never, ever, it's a permanent game of keep away. We retain all control, all ownership, all property rights. And no matter how much you spend ever, you will never, ever have a copy of this that is beyond our reach and beyond our control. That is what the corporate mentality has moved towards in this last decade in particular. And it was starting to drift towards that even before that. But only in this past 20 years has this like technology made this possible. And this is the dark side of the technology. The beautiful side is the compact nature, the low physical footprint, uh, and the ease of access, like multiple devices. You, know, like, you can plug this in all over the place and take it with you all. Like you, you can have your entire film library in your pocket and like, Hey, if I'm traveling and I have to go somewhere, I just plug this into the TV and like whatever place I land and bam, I'm watching my favorite shows, even though I'm far away from home. All this miraculous stuff happened. Well, you don't even have. Here's the dark side. All right. You don't own Jack Squat and you are intended in the future to own even less. So let's talk about Ubisoft. Let's, yeah, let's reel this in. Okay. So we went to a, all right. Thank you. Hello, children. Welcome to our history lesson of old technology that you'll never understand. Now, 
Some of you may have experienced it, and you don't need us to lecture you about it. But nonetheless, here you are. You got one. Now, after uh, establishing that, yeah, technology back in the day was uh, very unique and was wondrous and fantastic. We're in an age where you don't even need to own anything. I mean, you just get it. And it's on your accounts, your profiles. Your It follows you wherever you go. You don't even need a physical object to carry with you. You can carry your entire gaming collection. And that's where we need to focus this back on is how this applies to gaming. And more importantly, why gaming is probably more important in these intellectual uh, property battles than you think. Because this is where the lines are starting to be drawn. And that's the clarion call for us to be come to terms with that Ubisoft, which is a company that I think has, to paraphrase uh, another person who said it more adroitly, I think only Asbestos and DDT have worse reputations than Ubisoft when it comes to gaming. They're terrible. Um, they, they go back on their promises. But Ubisoft is... Um, CEO just said that uh, gamers need to get used to not owning their games. And the concept that they're using is something like World of Warcraft or others that ha you have an account. You don't really physically own World of Warcraft, but you are allowed access to it by buying their expansions or main games. You download their uh, to computer to play it, but it's played online and your account information is stored there. And that's how you access the game. So you're basically paying for access to a specific account key to you. And that's your what you own is your time in the game. And that's recorded on your account. Uh, everything, but they can restrict you from it if you break the terms of service. And for the most part, companies like Blizzard and you other MMO uh, RPG companies are pretty good. That They give you three strikes. They give you a, a redemption time. Uh, good behavior, uh, you know, it's literally like the justice system. Oh, you're on a probation status. You can't post anything for three days. Darn it. Well, yeah, it's a great deal. Like you're you're visiting somebody's museum, okay? Mm -hmm. And there are expectations like, no, you may not spit on the paintings. No, you may not wipe your greasy fingers on the paintings. Here is a list of all the things you may not do to the freaking paintings in our freaking museum because it's our freaking museum, not yours, okay? Just... Just for the love of God, keep your hands to yourself and like enjoy the view. Okay, there's like what part of watch don't touch? You know, there are rules to the road. There are rules for access, and we're not generally opposed to those because, frankly, to run an MMORPG, you have to create an environment in which a large number. You know, in order to be successful at this. You have to have a very large number of people who have a satisfactory experience. Or any so online play if, content. If you have a very small number of people who are doing things that make the experience horrific for everyone else, it is on you to outlaw that conduct and say, look, you cannot do that here. because You cannot that, use slurs or call people horrifying names that would get you punched in the face in real life or jailed. You cannot do things that encourage yeah. harm or be overly... Well, odiously graphic in your descriptions of things. You yeah, have this is to not torture porn the RPG. Well, okay. it's more than just RPGs. I just use the uh, WoW because I'm familiar with it, but there are many other games out there that just aren't RPGs, but first person shooters, all that. Oh, Overwatch, yeah. uh, Fortnite, all. They've all suffered problems with toxic fandom. So we understand that there should be rules. But Ubisoft is different in that they're not talking about merely. Uh, 
you know, employing slightly stricter rules of the road for the usage of their product. Uh, their CEO was talking about, well, being very candid about what is well known inside the industry, but not often spoken of outside the industry. Yeah, well, the understanding that the long term goal mm -hmm. is to create a situation for the widest possible variety of media products, including gaming, uh, where nobody out there owns anything like that. The physical medium should be almost dead. Uh, the ability for the company to change the deal, you know, pray I do not alter it any further, you know, like just a Darth Vader-esque, highly exploitative environment is their long-term goal. One where there is no recourse, like, hey, either you want it or you don't. There's no other way to have it. Like, you're, you're, you're going to be able to participate a little bit at, like, ever continually increasing cost. Uh, and at, at any time we change our minds, you've got nothing. So <laughs> um, there has become something like the, the Ubisoft outcry when they took this stance and they kind of let the slip show for a moment. They, they, they let the mask off and people got a glimpse of them. A lot of people half our age very quickly developed the attitude that these two salty old, uh, you know, gamer nerds have had for a very long time. Uh, it snapped a lot of people awake and they went, oh man, um, you know, we were big fans of the idea of like digitizing everything, but not at terms like these. Like if, if we lose our stake as like a, able to control uh, what we get in exchange for our money, then that is not a bargain we would make. And I commend that line of thought. I, I'm so glad there are people joining that because the number one way, uh, all it takes is to like be really loud and clear while you bankrupt a couple of these companies. Say like, look, we will not buy a product that we have no stake in. We, we cannot take it home. We cannot have it. Uh, you know, it, it has to be like if it has to be online and we can never, ever make use of it without you know your absolute permission and total control of the, the end user product, then no, we don't want it. Go hang. And all it's going to take is a couple of companies disappearing and the message will be clear enough because this is about money. And I'm a big fan of like, hey, you know, a, a marketplace is shaped uh, by what makes money. And what doesn't? Money talks, BS walks. So you make a few of these people walk, and this problem will solve itself. You will get the mediums you want. You're, you're seeing people want movies uh, within access. Like, I really would like a copy of that in my home. Uh, and it's growing. It's begun to grow <laughs> very hard to have that. All right. Well, I need to jump in here as we're yeah. running low on time. So I'm just going to say that, yeah, there are already streaming services that are restricting content, removing content, or just not providing content that you might have had access to had you had the actual physical product. Um, a good case can be made for several series like Law & Order. Um, if you wanted to go back and watch the entire series of Law & Order, which is very lengthy, or some other ones, you would have to use three or four different streaming services now to get them. And even those I think even Peacock, which is the NBC one, it only allows the most recent seasons. 
uh, I think I'm going all the way back to season 11 is the the furthest back you can go. Oh, wait a minute. What, what was that guy on YouTube? He, he talked about something about... Uh, SpongeBob SquarePants. Yeah, oh, SpongeBob. Yeah, yeah the, to, you like could have back in the day got the Target box set, the box set of Squidge, SpongeBob SquarePants uh, on Blu-ray for around uh, $90. And um, you would have the, all the seasons and, and including some of the restricted episodes. And that's it. another thing is they've taken also removed episodes that are now controversial or... Um, is seen as kind of oh boy we really you know that didn't age well we need to get that out of there <laughs> they remove content and so that's another thing that is in there but yeah we want to talk people about... to like uh, issue culpability uh, and be disingenuous about what they have created like oh that wasn't us i uh, don't know what you're talking about uh, nobody's ever seen that one uh you know it's an urban myth uh, frankly this is the uh, george lucas uh, Star Wars Christmas special all over again. Mm. Like, yeah, once in a while you hear tales of people who hold a like special festival with their friends because they've got a copy on VHS. Yeah. Uh. But, you know, like Steam allows you full access to your library of games. You buy them, they pretty much guarantee you own it. And they seem to be, for right now at least, like, they seem to be pretty um, good about allowing you access i mean yes a few games disappear here and there as developers uh yeah they had some content that was hidden that was uh against the terms of service they'll drop them and yeah you don't have a copy of that anymore but uh you know they allow a massive amount of access to it they seem to be pretty good but ubisoft wants to get even away from that <laughs> allowing you access to it because you know well you bought it you, you know it's yours you can Redownload it or get access to it if it's online only and anytime you want from any computer or source that allows you to play it, whether it be from a laptop or other uh, PC. Now, Steam has been pretty good about that. Valve, you know, seems like just about like Blizzard on it. You know, unless you do something egregious, they're not going to even bother with you. You know, play your games, enjoy them. That's what we're here to provide the content for. But turning this back onto itself, just say, where are you guys going with this? Okay, so here it is. It's D&D Online has removed content. And oh, yeah, they already. do, you know, they can just like say like, hey, we don't want the Fiend Folio out. Um, we're going to remove that. Oh, but I paid access for it. Well, you paid access for it while it was available. It's no longer available. But, but if you have a full copy of the Fiend Folio, you bought it. Well, yeah, nobody can take that away from you. Well, I we could say that, but Wizards of the Coast did send the Pinkertons to go collect magic cards. And yes, we're never going to let you forget that, Wizards. So yeah. just deal with that. Well, You're going well, to hear... if, if you haven't forgotten, yeah, like these, these are people who sent the, the Pinkerton Thug Squad to somebody's house. Uh, now, I still like stand for, like, come on. Nobody is fooled when you say, I couldn't possibly have known that what I was doing might have been considered. Yes, you absolutely knew. Just don't lie. Don't have the dignity of saying, yeah, I knew what I was doing. But what WOTC did was still absolutely wrong. 100% uh, <laughs> uh, tone deaf, psychopathic Well, the dude response. was, look, we're not going to rehash, but yeah. the dude uh, literally got shipped something that he didn't want and uh, thought was uh, the person who sent it to him didn't understand what they were sending out. So it was uh -huh. like, well, you can say that all you want, but you got to prove. <laughs> Innocent until proven guilty. Burden of proof West is a disbeliever. Yeah, I, I'm but, kind of in the trade. I we we you cannot not know. Okay, it, 
Well, uh, okay. <laughs> Let's focus back on this, and we'll have that debate afterwards, or fist fight in the parking lot. But you know when it's not oxygen you're breathing. I okay. understand that. Yeah. You feel that way, but yeah. that doesn't mean necessarily what we think it is is actually true, because we don't know. We weren't there. Well, the point is, is that D&D Online has already removed content that, well, we just don't want to publish that anymore. We thought that was, uh, you know, it was inappropriate. To, hey, look, maybe they are totally justified removing it. Maybe it was a gaffe and it wasn't well thought out. And not only that, it was ill-received and ill-planned. When you have a physical copy of something, nobody can take that away from you. And whatever you know, we say about the wizard sending the jackbooted thugs to take it away from you. Well, okay, so it is worth saying that yeah, we probably don't mean that they will, and they probably can't, and more importantly, they probably won't anytime soon. So you're safe with your fifth edition books. But if they decide going in this new edition to start restricting access and saying, like, oh, we want you to just quit playing fifth edition. Then D and D online will not support fifth edition, and you had all that fifth edition content that you paid for, and enjoyed access to with all the tools and the bells and whistles. Yep, gone. It's gone, and that's the clearing call that Ubisoft is looking to make. Is like, look, you know, they can do it. We we're doing it. Uh, everybody's doing it's it. It's a hot new thing. You should just get used to it. No, you should get used to telling companies no and not giving them any money and saying, well, here's the stumbling block. I will not pay you for this diminished like uh, the the money that you want for this product is wildly in excess of the value that i am getting so i'm not going to give you the money goodbye and you do that to them and they will go oh well crap uh we may have to rethink this because money is where it matters okay that's right, that's what's all about money look we can put some highfalutin uh, ideals money. onto this and say, like, hey, this is about ownership. This is about creativity and paying the artists and the creators properly. But it's all about money but to these guys. And that's where it ends. Look, really what made Wizards of the Coast blink in uh, the OGL scandal last year was all the D&D online cancellations and uh, canceling their subscriptions. A lot of subscribers quit. And that, in just a few short hours, 13 hours, yeah, they lost 20%. 18 to, uh, yeah, 18% of their subscribers canceled and more were coming in. It was just, they were bleeding out and they were like, okay, um, we have to actually just say, okay, fine, you yeah. get it. Uh, we, we, we hemorrhaged. Um this is not good. Uh, wow, do you not like that? <laughs> uh, so but... we do have the power to change. And how would you get them from changing their content? Well, just don't buy their stuff for a while. That's what it is. It's like, if you want to, well, I really like, you know, the Assassin's Creed series. Hey, look, I've got... Uh, hey, cool game. Uh, you know, yeah. In some respects, I, I, I consider it a cool game. Like, I'm not saying it isn't. I'm just saying that some of the corporate policies that they have exhibited in the past do not shed a good light on them uh, yeah. and do not make them an appealing company that I would want to interact with. That, that's not a zone I want to explore. But, you know, what you can do is you can stand tall and just say no. And how you do that is with your wallet. And that's the only control you have. But look, we're running out of time here. So we've battered your eardrums enough. So until next time, may the, the dice, dice always roll in your favor. We're out. See ya.